0: Bruce Ellis Benson, and today we are continuing our discussion of the value of college and higher education in general. As I mentioned in the first Pensée, if you have any experiences from going to college, or for that matter, not going to college, that you'd like to share, please do send those in, and let us know if you'd like your name read on the podcast or if you'd prefer to remain anonymous. In the previous episode, I considered the long-standing view that going to college is always a net benefit. Up until recently, that was the consensus for most people in the U.S. Of course, there have always been some who are not completely in favor of going to college. While I never personally experienced anyone suggesting that I not go to college out of fear that doing so would lead to a loss of Christian faith, the fundamentals and evangelical worlds have always had such ideas swirling around. But now many people have doubts about going to college. I use the word doubts because I think that's exactly the right word. One of the big problems in life, in trying to figure out if someone is doing or has already done the right thing, is that we never get to experience an alternative universe in which we could see what would have happened if we had, say, only done x rather than y. You can always theorize about what might have been the case. Had you chosen X rather than Y? Philosophers call these kinds of arguments counterfactual arguments, or simply counterfactuals, arguing on the basis of what didn't happen. A common example of such a question would be like this. What would have happened if the Nazis had won World War II? Would we all be speaking German? Would the world as we know it still exist? It's not hard to see that such arguments are highly problematic, because we simply don't know what would have happened if we hadn't chosen otherwise. The main reason for mentioning this point up front is that when you make a decision, you have to rely on whatever information is available to you at the time, and then you choose. You may discover other information at a later stage that would have caused you to decide differently, but it's too late at that point. We'll be spending a good deal of time discussing the variables that could make attending college a wise decision or else a poor decision, but the major complication of such arguments is that you really don't know how things will turn out, nor will you ever be able to know how they might have turned out if you had made a different decision. In the previous episode, I referred to two different articles that have appeared recently, both under the title, Is College Worth It? One is in the New York Times and the other is in Forbes. We noted that both students and now their parents are considerably less certain about the value of college. One reason for that is simply that college has gotten very expensive. Anytime an article like this, or an art college education in general, appears, The comments are full of people who talk about, oh, when they went to college back in the 60s, you know, it only cost nearly nothing. I was about to say zero, but it wouldn't be zero, but nearly nothing, and then how they made it work. Reading those comments is, at least for me, discouraging. Yes, it's nice that you went to college and don't have any debt, but perhaps you don't need to keep reminding people who are currently in college of that fact. The one important aspect of such reminders is that the situation has changed dramatically for many people. Sure, there are people whose parents will be able to foot the bill no matter what, but most parents and their kids going off to college are not in a position like that. They have to think very hard about the numbers and how to make them work. Consider how Paul Tuff, who is the one interviewed in the New York Times article, puts it. The problem that I think families and economists are now coming to understand inherent in the college wage premium is that it measures your income, but it doesn't measure how much you paid for college, and it doesn't measure how much debt you have. And so that shortcoming is what has pushed a variety of economists to come up with new ways of capturing what I think a lot of American families are feeling. How worth it is a college degree over the long term when you factor in how much you're spending and how much you owe. In the previous episode, we considered the argument that going to college will mean that you will make about a half million dollars more than if you didn't go. If you don't go to college, you'll lose out on that benefit. However, now economists and those paying for college are realizing that this benefit might be realized by certain people, but not everyone. Moreover, how you get through college. In other words, what kind of economic toll it takes on you and your parents is one that needs to be factored into the whole equation. For instance, if going to college requires putting you or your parents in massive debt, it may not be worth it. The Federal Reserve claims that the current average for student debt is thirty two thousand seven hundred and thirty one dollars. Yet if that's the average, that means that many students must have considerably more debt. The majority of debt is between 25 and 50,000. If one could borrow that amount, but not be expected to pay interest, that would definitely make it easier. But if the new math about college is correct, it might still be a bad financial decision, even without having to pay any interest. On NPR's weekend edition last year, Aisha Roscoe asked a guess, Isabel, You attended the University of Texas at Austin more than 10 years ago. What led you to leave the school? Here's Isabel's answer. Yeah, it was a combination of things. One was not really feeling like the major was something that would help me in the future. And then there was also the fact that I was starting to accumulate that debt. And so I needed to switch from part-time to full-time jobs. And, you know, to try and make ends meet. So I just decided to stop thinking, oh, I'll come back to it. And, of course, life happened, and I never did. In the previous episode on the value of higher education, I mentioned that many students do not finish their degree, and yet they still have ongoing debt. In the case of Isabel, she also says that for her current position, she was offered about twenty to $30,000 less because she had no degree. I mention this because it's a concrete example of how having a degree can make a substantial financial difference. As to not finishing college, whenever I would talk to students who were thinking of dropping out for various reasons, my worry was always that they would never return. Let me put it this way. I had many students who made what seemed to me like pledges when they graduated. The usual promise was that they would continue reading philosophy even though they were now going to work in something very different. My thought that went through my head when most of them made this promise? you're going to be far too busy with life to devote much time to philosophy, though it's a lovely thought and very kind of you to say that. For many students who drop out of college, that proves to be, well, the end of it. Yet even though Isabel has no degree, she still owes $60,000 in debt. You can imagine the frustration of knowing that if you'd only finished off those remaining credits, you'd have a degree that at least would help you pay back what you owe. In terms of options, you can go to a community college, a public university, a private college, or university, or for-profit school. And all of these carry both benefits and drawbacks. Let's start with community college. These schools are wonderful in an important sense. They are usually priced so that virtually anyone can attend. Like four-year schools, they vary in terms of quality, and much of that has to do with the tax base of the community. I've taught courses at a community college, and here's my impression. You will find students of every demographic and ability. I taught an Intro to Philosophy course one semester, and there was some in the class who was so bright and so interested in philosophy that she actually attended the philosophy conference at the other school where I was teaching. That's the most positive side. Other students are all over the map. In that same course, there was a retired mortician who showed up the first night and then never returned. I think the fact that we were actually going to read philosophy was just a little too scary. I've always taught philosophy from primary texts, and yeah, they can be a little difficult. I can easily see why someone might think, yeah, that's too hard, I don't want to do that. But I've also had a number of students who, to save money, started up by attending community college for the first two years and then transferred to where I was teaching. I think this probably worked out well for many of these students. But I do have some reservations about community colleges. In order to get a job teaching at such a school, you don't really need anything more than a master's degree. Indeed, such schools are often reluctant to hire people with PhDs. Perhaps this is because most of the people who are already there don't have PhDs and might be threatened by those who do. I've mentioned before that academic departments and academia in general are often petty, so the idea of being threatened is very much based on reality. But a different way. At a community college, you'll likely get a professor with only a master's degree. One can argue that that would be sufficient, and perhaps it truly is. The only point I'd make in response is that people who go on to get PhDs usually know a lot more than those who've only done a master's degree. It's really a matter of time. Yet there's another aspect to all of this. Most community colleges don't have anything close to enough staff to teach all the courses offered. Thus, many courses are taught by adjuncts. If you're part of the world of academia, you know all about adjuncts. Adjunct professors are people who agree to teach a specific course for a specific amount of money. They may end up teaching the equivalent of a full load, but they are still only paid by the course, and there's no health insurance or any kind of benefit available. That description alone should make it clear why colleges and universities like adjuncts. You don't have to pay them very much, and there is no commitment from the school to those folks. But you can probably already see the other side of the system. Are those who are adjuncts particularly qualified to teach such courses? One way of answering that question is by saying that professors at other schools may well want to supplement their pay by teaching such courses. In such cases, I suspect the quality of education would be pretty good. Yet one of the things I've discovered is that some people teaching these adjunct courses may not be particularly qualified to teach them. Put more bluntly, I discovered that certain people I knew taught philosophy courses at community colleges, even though they had no real credentials to do so. I'm not saying they didn't have any degrees. I'm just saying that their degrees were in another field. Many deans who are constantly looking for faculty to fill these positions probably think something like, well, you studied theology, that's that's close enough to philosophy. These kinds of situations are somewhat difficult to judge because someone might well be competent enough to teach an intro course, even though his or her degree is in another field. But let's just say that I had significant doubts about some of the people I knew who were teaching. There's a further element here that needs to be mentioned. Community colleges are set up so that people can live at home and take classes. For some students, that's probably ideal. But I think that the first year student is going to miss out on many experiences of college life that happened in the dorm or in the cafeteria or in some other place on campus. I think college is designed to be a mixture of different experiences. In many cases you are assigned to a particular dorm with a roommate. The experience of living with people you've never met before is an important part of college. Of course I will say that community college has the benefit of bringing very different people together. At many selective schools your experience will be one of, shall we say, much greater homogeneity. Many of your fellow students will be very similar to you. But the community colleges allow anyone who lives in the district to take courses. That point is the basis for the long-running TV series titled Community, which brings together a weird assortment of characters. Interestingly enough, Glendale Community College, located in Glendale, California, was actually the model that the show's creator, Dan Harmon, used It's a very funny show, largely due to the quirky characters. When Harmon attended community college, he became part of a study group, and that provides the basis for the interaction for the show. It's interesting that Harmon saw himself in the role of Jeff, who attends the college with the assumption that he has little to learn from anybody else, and soon learns how false that is. I suspect that most people who attend community college are not part of study groups, just due to the nature of how things are set up. If most people, well, pretty well everyone lives at home and comes to campus mainly attend courses, it's unlikely that such a group would develop. However, I did want to mention this feature of community colleges, namely, they force you to interact with people you probably wouldn't interact with otherwise. The school where I mainly taught brought together a bunch of students who were very similar. They were basically upper middle class white people who had nearly identical theological views and very similar views regarding mm, probably most things. Most students had never really been outside of their particular theological bubble and thus attending the school meant that they could just stay right inside of that little bubble, could just take the bubble with them. In contrast, the students who take classes at the local community college come from all socio religious, and political backgrounds. Public universities usually cost considerably more than community colleges, but they're often still less expensive than a private university. Many of these schools are excellent, such as UC Berkeley, Michigan, and Virginia. Of course, you need to live in those states for these schools to be affordable. Berkeley costs $15,891 if you live in the state. It's $48,465 if you're from somewhere else. That's about three times the uh, state rate. One problem with such schools is that because they are publicly funded, the state legislature gets to decide how much funding they get and can easily decide to decrease funding. Also, many states have cut back funding, in some cases significantly so. That usually means that tuition has to go up to compensate for the loss. In a report by the National Educational Association in 2022, we learned that 32 states spent less per student in 2020 than they did in 2008 and that's uh, adjusted for inflation. That's not very encouraging, not just because it means that education at these institutions is more expensive, but also because it reveals the priorities of lawmakers. Big public universities are usually very large. Arizona State University has 65,000 students, Ohio State has 46,000, UT Austin has 41,000. I'm sure many students at these institutions figure out how to connect to a community, but that's got to be a challenge. I've talked to students at such places who feel that they're little more than a number. Most of the elite schools are private and are by nature expensive. What I mean by that is they're designed to be expensive. They pay professors salaries that are much greater than typical college salaries. They offer a wide range of programs and professors who are often well-known and leaders in their fields. And the biggest prize, of course, is the cachet of the institution rubbing off on each student. But of course, you have to pay for that. Besides the actual cost of attending such a school, there is an additional cost. Namely, in the first couple of years at schools like this, you are likely to get grad students teaching your courses. That feature is built in the very structure of the institution. Elite universities attract elite graduate students. One way that universities are able to accept such students is that part of their remuneration package usually includes the student working as a teaching assistant, a TA, for the first year or two of graduate school and then teaching a number of courses in the following years. While students are admitted to graduate school on the basis of their academic ability, there's no requirement that they are able to teach well. In my own experience, many teachers who are great are probably just born that way. I've watched younger teachers, though, grow into good or even great teachers, so it's possible to transform. But the fact of the matter is that an ability to do, say, high-level physics doesn't necessarily translate in the ability to convey that knowledge to people who don't already know it. Put another way, most graduate schools do very little to prepare their students for teaching. Some have seminars on teaching for advanced PhD students, though I don't know really how common such things are. Personally. I took no course on teaching. Uh, there was no instruction on how to be a good teacher. The person who taught me as an undergraduate and then hired me said to me as I was going off my first class, just be yourself. I've often found it strangely amusing that grade school and high school teachers have to create lesson plans and, and take courses on teaching while university faculty usually have no training relating to teaching. In any case, if you're getting courses from graduate assistants, there's going to be a lot of variation. Not only have the graduate students not really been taught to teach, but they're learning by teaching you. Of course, most graduate students have a spark of excitement that might be missing from someone who's taught for many years. I've often thought of what it must be like to be on Broadway and have the same lines night after night. I stand in awe of those who do it for multiple years. One of the things that I discovered was that teaching intros requires an enormous amount of energy. And they required more and more energy as the years passed. Part of this was that I tended to schedule my courses later in the day in order to have the morning free for writing. Thus, I knew that I couldn't go into the classroom with low energy. I needed to pull out all the stops if it was going to go well. But it was also just the difficulty of giving more or less the same course semester after semester. I'm talking particularly about teaching intro. At that point, all the students were required to take intro to philosophy. It was quite literally the best advertisement for our major. For reasons that I only partly understand, somehow I generated the most majors, and that made the department want me to teach as many intros as possible. Sort of the victim of your own success kind of thing. But trying to keep everything fresh was a constant task. You have to remember the students in your spring semester didn't take your fall semester course. You have to start fresh each and every time. And that becomes harder and harder over the years because you have to recreate the same excitement that you had for the subject decades ago. I've already been talking about my own teaching, which has been largely in the context of a liberal arts college. I have to say that I'm very partial to such institutions because I think they can hit the sweet spot. Most liberal arts colleges value teaching, and many of them value it so much that advancement and tenure are often strongly tied to good teaching. I think that's a win for students. Moreover, if you can find a liberal arts college that has faculty that also publishes a certain amount, you're likely to get a great combination. Yes, for graduate work, it's a good idea to study with someone famous in your field, but that's not so important at the undergraduate level. While I'm so partial to liberal arts education, educational institutions is that I think they are the form of college most likely to work from an educational perspective. Classes are usually small. When I first started in my department, the courses had a capacity of 45 students, way, way, way too big. Over time, though, we whittled that down to 25. As I said in the last episode, all my students had some form of weekly papers. Just to be clear, no one required me to assign those. I could have dropped them whenever I wanted. But it became clear to me very early that such interaction greatly facilitates learning. Still, had I been teaching at a large university, I'm not sure I would have been able to assign as many papers because there would have been much more to grade and maybe also because administrators might not permit it. Another feature of liberal arts college is that because they're small, there's a sense of community. The school where I taught had a program called Dine with a Mind. Yes, it's a strange Uh, Cartesian kind of uh, uh, title, and yet it essentially allowed a student to go to the student government office, get a meal ticket, and take a professor to lunch. One year I realized that I had been invited to lunch by students nearly a hundred times. I I don't know if students have any sense of the energy it takes to be a professor, but I do remember that if I had a lunch with a student, teaching a class after such a lunch just required that much more energy and concentration. Many students took advantage of such opportunities and there were years that the meal ticket fund was exhausted by early April. Obviously, an important feature of college life is the endless discussions around matters academic and everything else. There's really nothing that can replace the experience of learning new things with friends and then having discussions about them. Liberal arts colleges tend to emphasize having a place on campus, at least for the first couple years. So how do you determine if college is worth it? The articles from which I've been quoting ask this question from a financial viewpoint, rather than from a personal perspective. Although I think the second viewpoint is more important, you can't simply ignore the first. So how does one make such a judgment? If we consult the Forbes article, there's no surprise that the primary emphasis is on cost. Indeed, it makes an important distinction between income and wealth in regard to college. Income is what you're able to take home each month. Wealth is what you create over time. Now, let's try to consider this from a hypothetical stance. Say you decide to go to law school. Yes, this is different from going to college, but this is a more straightforward kind of case. Simplifying just a bit, you can choose a school that's say less costly and thus will require fewer loans or maybe maybe even no loans. Most likely though, you'll end up with a job that's good but you probably won't be making a huge amount of money. But suppose you decide that you want to go to one of the prestigious law schools. That's going to cost you a lot, and you most likely take on substantial debt. If you do well in law school, then you'll find a job with a big firm that pays well. But you'll have to pay for that job by virtually living at the office. If you thrive on that, it could be the perfect position. I've used this example because it's pretty likely that getting a law degree from a famous university is going to be worth it financially. Of course, whether that sort of life is appealing is an entirely different question. I can say without any qualification whatsoever, I would have no interest in living that life. However, to stay with the financial aspect, whatever job you would take after law school needs to be able to provide enough income to pay off those loans. As I said, I use the example of law school because it's relatively straightforward. You go to law school to become a lawyer. Being a lawyer can lead to public office or other things, but most people go to law school so they can become a lawyer. But college isn't really like that at all. Yes, you can go to probably a for-profit school to take courses that would give you very, very specific schools, but whatever those schools are, they aren't the same as college. The difficulty of talking about college in a purely financial way is that most courses of study in college just simply do not lead to specific careers. For instance, in my intro courses, I would always have a day about the middle of the semester in which I'd come into the classroom and say, I'm now going to give an advertisement for why you should pick philosophy as your major. Then I would spend about 20 minutes talking about the value of such a major. Primarily helps you to learn to think and write skills that are useful in many fields. I'd provide a list of the various things our majors had done after college, which was basically everything. I'd let them know that philosophy majors did the best on the LSAT exam, that's the exam you take for law school, and the second best on the MCAT exam, that's the exam you take for medical school. But then I'd say something like this. All of that stuff about the stats is for you to have at your disposal when you announce to your parents that you're going to be a philosophy major. But the main reason to study philosophy is that it's fun. And here, I think, is where the financial analysis aspect is going to be problematic. Yes, people can see the monetary value of the STEM fields, but many of us have no desire to work in those fields. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may remember that I did a podcast on the tech companies in Silicon Valley, and we looked at a book in which the author points out that these companies operate like religious cults, basically They want to own you. It's very nice that they provide great meals and fitness centers and handle your dry cleaning. But I find it hard to think that this kind of life would be good, for me at least. So my point is simply this. Yes, learning to code may enable you to make a lot of money. But that doesn't mean you'll be happy. Moreover, I would think you'd really need to be on board to work for such companies. You'd need to see your work as having importance for the world, as being on some kind of mission to do something really, really important for the world. But we'll have to stop there. I hope you found today's episode enlightening. If you have any comments about your own college experience, I promise this is the last time I'll ask, since I'll need them by early next week. You can send them to our email address, which is the same email address as always, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. That's onbecomingpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.